Hebrews chapter number 3, verses 1 to 6 this morning. We're going to be thinking about holding fast in hard times. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and the word of God says this. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of much, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he hath builded the house, has builded, has more honour than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily or truly was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for those little truths that were sung by the children this morning. But Lord, they are little truths, but yet so profound and so deep and so needed in our lives. So we ask that your truth would be spoken this morning that the words would be your words. That your spirit would move amongst us and Lord, whatever we need this morning, if it's a, a little help, if it's a little encouragement, maybe even it's a little challenge this morning. Whatever it is, Lord, we ask that you would supply, that you would meet with us, that your holy word would touch our hearts. Lord, it's a living word. It's a life-changing word. It's your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us just to hold fast to that hope. To never let it go. So Lord, I pray you would just reaffirm some of our beliefs. Lord, just pick us up and build us up. For what we have to face in days and weeks to come. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you spent much time in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a tremendous biblical book. It's the book of better, if I was to give it a little paraphrase. I would also say, and I shared this this week with somebody actually, that said they were struggling a little bit with some of the concepts in the Hebrews and tying it down. You know, Hebrews is, is part two of a two-part set. Part one is the book of Leviticus. Oh, Leviticus. Oh, no, I don't go there often. You won't understand the better until you understand what came before the better. You have to have a reference point. And the book of Leviticus, when you read it and do a little bit of study into it, when you come to the book of Hebrews, your eyes are uh, open to the truths that the writer of the book of Hebrews is speaking about. You'll not fully understand that it's a book of better. Better than what? You don't understand when the writer says, don't neglect such a great salvation. Why is the salvation so great? Look at the book of Leviticus. See the Mosaic and Levitical system and understand what that all pointed to. Hebrews reveals what it pointed to. More importantly, 
who it pointed to in the Lord Jesus Christ. The typology is, is amazing, amazing. But you've got to go into the old to really see the truth of the new. It's a book of better, and, and uh, time and time again through the book of Hebrews, we're reminded by the author how much uh, more, this is terrible English, but more better. <laughs> Anybody a grammar Nazi here? Good, I know that's irking you, but I don't really care because <laughs> I am not a grammar Nazi. Uh, but, you know, you, you, get, you get the idea that, that, that God's promises in Christ Jesus are better. They are better, better, better. And I could go on with the betters because they're infinitely better. And that's what we have as believers, as the house of God today. We have the promises of God for the church in Christ Jesus. And they are beautiful beyond measure. They're immeasurable. Immeasurable promises. And there's a contrast really in the book of Hebrews between the promises of God through Christ to the promises of God through Moses, as it were, in those two systems, in the new and the old. And and it's beautiful to to watch. And so in chapter 3, Moses is brought out in contrast to Christ. And it says here about Moses, verse number 5 of chapter 3, it says that he was faithful in all his house. And then it says, as a servant. Now, do any of you scholars know the Greek word for servant? Doulos. That's one of them. Yeah. But this isn't it. This is a very unique word in, in the Greek. This is where the pastors do their work and have to read the commentaries and look at all their things so we can you know, help you along with this. Uh, but... The the word that's used there is not the usual New Testament word for servant or slave. And in fact, in the New Testament, it's only ever used of Moses. And the meaning carries a voluntary servant who acts because of affection. And that's the, the, the reference here that's given to Moses. A voluntary servant who acts because of affection. And Moses was a servant in the house of God. But Christ, look at verse 6, where here the contrast comes in. It says in verse number 6, But Christ as a son over his own house. Do you see the difference there? That Moses was a faithful uh, a servant, a voluntary servant, who acts because of affection in his house. But Christ is a son over his own house. And, and, and this is beautiful because we are in Christ. You, you want to understand this. If you're here this morning and you're a born again believer, positionally you are in Christ. That's an unchangeable position. Now practically, now that may be working out in your life, but positionally you are in Christ this morning. So when we read this contrast that Moses was a servant after his house, that voluntary servant, and then we get the contrast that Christ, now Christ isn't a servant over his house, he is a son over his own house. And then it says, whose house we are. 
God's talking to the believer here. The holy inspired word is here for the believer. And it says of the believer, contrasting old and new, that we are of the house of Christ who is a son over his own house. I'm going to stop and breathe that in a little bit. Stop and think about that. That is privilege personified right there. That you belong to the house of Christ. You are in him as a believer this morning. And, and that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we should stop and, and think about that. But uh, when we stop and think about that, we also then have to move on. We can't stop there forever. We move on in the text. And notice in verse number 6, it says, whose house we are, and then it says, if. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So now we're a little bit, oh, hold on, there's an if there. There's a clause there. If. What does that mean? If we hold fast to the confidence. Now, again, we're in contrast here in the book of Hebrews. The old and the new. And, and the if clause has to be understood in the light of the total context of, of the, the portion of scripture that we're in, which is Moses leading Israel out of Egypt onto the promised land. So the, we have to understand the writer's not suggesting that this is, 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 is a very binary thing. That we are of Christ if we do this. And some will try and teach that. And, and that brings us to workspace salvation. And we know that scripture as a whole uh, speaks against that. You know, position is unchangeable, I absolutely believe. You know, there's a practical element to your position, absolutely, and you have to work that out. So if we were to say that only those that have the hope and confidence and live in that are of the house, then we're, we're doing a misjustice to the totality of Scripture. So what's the, what's the writer talking about? What is he trying to stress here? And really this is to do with the position and the privilege. It's the position and the privilege. And I believe absolutely the writer is just affirming that those that hold fast, their confidence and their hope are proving that they're born again. They are showing that they are of the house of God, that's what I believe the writer is trying to teach us. That because we are of the house of God, of the house of Christ, as it were, because we are in him, we show that in our confidence and hope in that positional truth, that we are in him. This is, this is, this is the, the tension, you know, when we get into the book of James. The faith without works is dead. Not positional, but it's practical. That if you are of Christ, and if you are in him, that you will produce some fruit in your life. Now, the question of how much fruit you're going to produce is simply down to you and your battle with the spirit and the flesh. With your will versus God's will. That's simply the, the, the equation there. You want to be a fruit-producing Christian? Get in the will of God. Align with him. Not simply let, right, God, you're in charge, you take the wheel now. There's part of it's that. 
But it's also stepping into who you are in Christ. Paul talks about this. He says, laboring according to his power. Striving according to God's power. We have to step into God's will. You have to exercise your will. You can't give it away. You say, here God, have my will. Off you go. No, you have to exercise it, but you align it with what God wants for you, according to Scripture, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when you walk in that, you will produce fruit. That's inevitable. It's inevitable. The question is how much. That's down to you and your walk with God. And that is between you and God. There are, you know, pastors. I heard yesterday at uh, the induction of of Alan Campbell there in Blurton. um, You know, pastors are a gift to the church. You may think, well, that's a debatable passage. But (laughs) that's what the word of God says. So yes, the pastor will come along and he'll want to encourage you. He'll want to challenge you. He'll want you to be producing fruit. You know, that's our job, to build up the church, to edify the church, to educate the church. But it's your walk. It doesn't mind. It's yours and you'll stand before God. So yes, there are godly counsel. Yes, there are exhortations. Yes, there's challenges to be about God's work. But ultimately... It is between you and the Lord. And if you are in him, and if you love him, and if you surrender to his will, you'll produce fruit. You'll produce fruit. And it'll be the very fruit that God has planned for you before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. We're saved by grace. right? Read on to verse 10. That we might walk in the works that he has ordained for us. It's all there. It's all there. So this is what the, the writer in Hebrews really, I think, is, 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 is telling us. And so if we look at verse 6 again of, of, of Hebrews 3, if, if we were to paraphrase, and I don't want to rip, rip the word of God out, but if we were to take the if we clause out and uh, replace it with who. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, who hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. That's what we should really be. Just holding fast on to Christ because we are in Christ and we love Christ and we trust Christ and we believe that he's what he says he will do. And that's where our hope comes. Not in us, not in who we think we are, but in him. And the natural, natural outworking of the born-again, spiritful Christian living in the Lord is to show forth this hope and this confidence each and every day. So that when somebody who is not saved, who is an unbeliever, comes along to you and wonders why you can handle the things that you face in such a gracious way, in such a patient way, in such a loving way, in a calm way, You can point to the hope and confidence you have because you're of the house of Christ. That's where it comes from. And that's what we're to show to the world. That word confidence there in verse 6 literally means freedom of speech or openness. This is the same word rendered boldly. Hebrews 4.16, we know this, yes? Let us come therefore boldly. It's the same, same, same wording, with confidence. You know, there's a boldness to the believer where there should be in who we are. Not in, you know, Kevin Cowdery, 
but in Christ. That's where the confidence comes. That's where the boldness comes. That's how we approach that very throne of grace. You can see the the contrast between the old and the new. This is what I'm talking about in Leviticus because let me tell you, uh, the high priest, uh, if we could pull up the high priest from the Old Testament, bring him here and say, you know, how did you feel in the day of atonement? How did you feel in the day where you walked in the holy place and went into the holy of holies where you knew the presence of God was? Were you confident? Were you bold? I guarantee you he'd say, absolutely not. I was in fear for my life. To come before God as a sinner, even in the blood of a the animal. No, no. That was the most reverent, fear-inducing, emotion-inducing day. But one of the things that I wouldn't say is that it came boldly. But we are exhorted, exhorted as believers to do that very thing. That's the contrast between these uh, two systems. That's the contrast that the writers trend to get us to and the boldness that we have isn't secured by the blood of bulls and goats that's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us look at verse 19 Hebrews 10 if you've got Hebrews open there look at verse 19 because here's how we come boldly it's all tied into our identity it's all tied into the fact that we are of the house of Christ Hebrews 10 19 having therefore brethren boldness confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's what it means to be of the house of Christ. That's the position and the privilege that we have as believers to come before God. So we should keep that confidence. This is my point. We should hold that confidence. We shouldn't let it go because it wasn't earned by us. It was earned by Christ and it was bestowed upon us. And we should hold it in our hearts. We should never let it go. Never let your confidence in Christ go. Now the world will come along and challenge that. Each and every step. Through trial. Through trouble. Through difficulty. Through persecution. Whatever it may be. But don't let go of your confidence in Christ. It's who we are. In him. We're to hold fast. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. A kind of modern context of this a little bit was playing out before us with the royal family. And particularly Prince Harry or Prince Henry, whatever you want to call him, and how, you know, there's this, he's part of the royal family, but he's not, because he's not living that position and that privilege. You know, he's always going to be a relation to the queen pa. He's always going to be the son of the king, right? But is he living that position and privilege out as he should? No, he's denying it, not changing it, but it's affecting what he can be used for in that household. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We're in the house of Christ. And if we're holding fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, 
We are living that privilege out and we're showing others what that privilege is. The rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. You've probably heard the saying, I'm sure you have, where there's life, there's hope. Right? Who's heard, heard that saying before? I want to give you the biblical version of that for the house of Christ this morning. Where there is hope, there is life. Where there's hope, there is life. And our hope isn't in us. It's in Christ, the eternal, risen, interceding, our high priest, our apostle. It's in him. And where there is hope, there's life. And that's what we're to be. We're to be a people of hope. Again, the world wants to rob you of this. Wants to squash it, quell it, just oppress it. Because the world doesn't live in hope. It doesn't live in hope. How can there be any hope? It lives in doom and gloom. That's the reality of it. You know, what do you hear? What do you hear? You know, from any, any, any source, you know, the future is limited for the human race. That's what the scientists tell us. Sun's going to burn out at some point. That's what they say. And we're beat. Asteroids, you know, it's only a matter of time before something else hits us and implodes us. It's only a matter of time before what? The resources run out. Etc., etc., we're killing the planet. Da, 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 da. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? There is none. There is none. But where there's hope, there's life. Um, I want to caveat this this morning for, before I get a queue of people <laughs> at the end of the sermon. Just, you know, Milton Baptist Church in no way condones any kind of abuse of animals around them. But I'm going to refer you to uh, an experiment that was done in the 60s um, regarding rats. Now, rats, love them, loathe them, whatever. They're, they're tremendous swimmers. They're very, rats are very clever little animals. Very, um, you know, fascinating little things. But tremendous swimmers. They can, they can swim and swim and swim. So there was a series of experiments that was done on, on rats and just how they behaved in certain conditions when they, when they were swimming. And uh, what, what they did was they had, like, you know, where they have the kind of test subjects. And the test subjects were just rats that were lifted, put in water in, in laboratory conditions, you know, with a current. And they would just swim, 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 swim. And then they had another section where they would uh, lift the rat. And again, you know, this is, this is just an illustration. So, <laughs> so they would lift, lift, lift the rat and they would hold it confined for a while uh, in the water. So that it couldn't swim, it was, just, it was just held. And then, after a period of time, it doesn't say how long that was, but after a period of time, they would then let go of that rat. And instead of just going on to swim like the other rats did, it would literally just give up and, 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 and let itself dry. So the scientists were working out what was, what, what was going on here. So they did another experiment off, off the back of this, because they, they kind of rationalized that the rats that were held and confined uh, by the, the, the scientists or whatever they were using to do that before they were put in the water um, must have equated just having no options to do anything. And then when put in the water, they, they kind of give up. So as they were working through this experiment, what they did with the rats that they held and confined, so they narrowed it down now to the rats that they held and confined and they were putting in the water and were just drowning, is that before they drowned, they lifted them out of the water and put them back into, in their cages. 
And then, after a period of time, I don't know how long, they would take that same very rat that they'd done this extra bit of the procedure with, and they go through the same thing, and what they found was, after they released them, rather than giving up, the rats would continue to swim. So there was a change that happened. What was the change with that rat? It was living in hope that it would be, you know, as far as rats can, <laughs> that it was going to be rescued. So what did it do? It kept swimming. It kept swimming. Where there's hope, there's life. There's life. You know, um, <laughs> I've actually preached a sermon on this before, but I think it's from uh, Finding Nemo. Who's seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, okay. Some, some enthusiastically have seen Finding Nemo this morning. Some people just don't even know what I'm talking about, but that's fine. A little cartoon about a, about a fish. I don't know whether this is the first one or second one, but there's another little fish uh, called Dory, I believe. has a very short-term memory. Reminds me of my wife, to be honest. Short, short-term memory. Not, not in looks, but in memory. Let me clarify that. And uh, she's this little thing. Just keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. Okay, this is... Some people are really in with this. Some people are lost. But anyway, the point is, you know, as a Christian, what am I saying? Let me try and bring this back. What am I saying this morning? Keep on swimming. Why? Because there's hope. You understand that this morning, believer? There's hope. Oh, it doesn't look like there's hope in the world, Pastor. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christ Jesus. There is hope in him. And as a believer this morning, as one of the house of Christ, there is hope in him and because of him and through him. Now we should know that as believers. But do we show that as believers? That's the question this morning. So you can say, well, that's all well and good. Have hope. It's very abstract though, isn't it? As a principle. Have hope. You know, you know, what does that look like practically? So now I've got past my introduction. I'll get to the main body. So you're either staying hope or you're downhearted now because this is just... But no, it's very, very short. But I, I want to give you, as a good Baptist pastor, I want to give you three uh, kind of things. Three things about hope and they're all peas. But here's the first thing. Turn with me to Romans 12. 12. Our hope should be a patient hope. That's my first point. I want you to hear this morning about hope. It should be patient. Romans 12.12 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation or trial, continuing instant in prayer. So here Paul connects our rejoicing in hope with patience in trial. Now, hands up if you know about trials in the Christian life. All right? Anybody not had a try in the Christian life? No? Okay, so now we're, we can relate to this, right? Because the Christian life is it's hard. It's a roller coaster. It can be up and down and sometimes off the track, sometimes on the track and all sorts, you know? Things come into our life and, you know, you don't know what tomorrow brings, do you? Simply, that's the truth of it. But Paul connects that our hope... Our rejoicing and hope is, is, is manifested really in how we deal with the trials, how we have patience in the trials. And, and you know, Christian living will bring trials. And some trials, you know, are, are, are massive, they're, they're, they're big. 
You know, it seemed like huge trials in our lives. And then there are other trials that may be a trial but seem no, you know, not too bad. We can look at other people's trials and say, I don't have trials like they have. But a trial is still a trial. A difficulty is still a difficulty. A hardship is still a hardship. And it's contextual to us. We live it. We might look at it and go, oh, well, you know, that's not what somebody else is going through. But that doesn't negate the fact you're going through it. Right? That's trials and troubles in the Christian life. So we've got to be honest and, and see this. But the point of the matter is that Paul is telling us to rejoice in hope. That when we're in that place, don't, don't, you know, let's not try and dissect what that place is. But when we're in that place, when we're feeling that way, rejoice in hope. Not necessarily that from an earthly context, we're going to see this trial go away if we just pray. But that our hope is not in earthly things. That's in the eternal king. And we looked at last Sunday morning. Flawless and forever. That's our eternal king. So our hope is, is, it should be patient. That we should rejoice. Because no matter what this world does, it's not going to change what's to come. Amen? Amen. So our hope should be patient. Second point. Our hope should be proactive. It should be proactive. Yes, it should be patient. Help is coming. The king is on his way. But also our hope should be proactive. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy 4, 10. Our hope should be Proactive hope. 1 Timothy 4.10 For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men especially of those that believed. The word for trust here is from the same Greek root as hope. And it can be translated as such. So, you know, what are we saying here? Well, Paul, Paul, Paul writes, Therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust or we hope in the living God. So our patient hope, this is what I want, want, want you absolutely to get this morning, our patient hope should not be passive hope. It's not like, right, you know, help's coming. We're stranded. We're, we're in a battlefield where the world is our enemy and we'll just find some place to hide and hold out in the hope that help is coming. That's passive hope. That's right, Jesus, come. No, 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 no. Our hope is to be patient, yes, but it's to be proactive because we are of the house of Christ. And as the house of Christ, yes, we have the promises that he is coming, but also we have the commands, capital C, to be his hands and his feet. That's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. So our hope, yes, it's patient, but it should be proactive. It should be a biblical hope. It should be a dynamic hope, an active hope. It should be a a directive hope, directing us on to him and his will for our life. And our hope should be biblical and based in God's promises. And it should put us into action. It should put us into gear. Our hope, yes, it's patient, but it should also be proactive And then finally, third point, 
See, but why do Baptist pastors always have three points? Because we're Trinitarian, that's why. We do things in threes, because God did it, and it works, right? <laughs> so, our hope should be a praising hope. This is our final point. It's a patient hope. Help is coming. The King is coming. We endure, because he is enthroned. Does that make sense? We endure because he is enthroned. And our hope should be proactive. Absolutely. We should be in amongst it, living out that hope. That hope and that confidence with boldness. Because we're of the house of Christ. But it should be a praise and hope. Turn to Psalm 71, verse 14. Psalm 71, verse 14. Psalm 71 is a prayer for deliverance. And it's offered by one who experiences, repeatedly experienced God's help throughout his life. And he's calling upon the Lord once again. Verse 14, the psalmist says, But I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. Now notice the, the, the relationship between hope and praise in this verse. This is where I'm going with this. Psalmist doesn't say, I will praise you more and more because you've answered my prayers. He doesn't say, I will praise you more and more because my hope has been fulfilled. But rather, his praise comes from a, a, a life of hoping, an attitude of hoping, a season of hoping as he looks for God to save him. I will hope continually and yet will praise thee more and more in that. Because help is coming from God. And sometimes that can be just literally the second coming, the return of Christ. But other times that's very real in our life. Other times the help from God is, is, is not actually what we thought we needed, but it's absolutely what we needed. Sometimes the help from God, and hear this, beloved, sometimes the help from God is to keep you in that trial for a little longer. See, that doesn't look like help. Doesn't sound like help. But some trials we need to sharpen and shape us to be more like him, to see God. But help is coming. But even if it doesn't manifest itself in the way that we want it to, the help that we have, the hope that we have in him should lead us to praise more and more. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing greater, nothing sweeter, nothing stronger when a believer in the midst of good trying and trouble has lips of praise. It's beautiful. I met a, a, a man this week. I've just started on a, on a Bible course doing my master's in applied theology. This is why this is passionate to me that we apply these truths. But I met a man um, a little bit younger than me, um, but in his, in his mid-30s, I think. Two young children, and uh, we were talking as, as we do. The students were talking, and he was saying that he has to do uh, dialysis three times a week, and he's, he's in his in his thirties. And he said that um, his kidney function has rapidly gone down, so he has nine percent kidney function, and he's waiting on a on a transplant. But he was saying it's okay. God's good. beautiful is that how beautiful is it when in the trials that we can say honestly not not hyperbole not just throwing it out there but 
God is good. God is good. Why? Because the hope and confidence isn't in this life and the things of this life. It's in him. And that should be unchangeable. That should never move. So, you know, the psalmist is pointing us to praise. And, you know, if you're down, if you're in a place where the trial and the trouble is on top of you this morning, here's my remedy. Praise him. Praise him. And praise him more. And you say, well, I'm not in a trial, but, you know, sometimes I feel down. The Bible calls us the spirit of heaviness. And this, particularly ministry related, I think, but also it happens. That you can be on a good run, as it were, and sometimes the spirit of heaviness just comes upon you. You can't put a reason on it, there's no rhyme to it, but there's a weight, there's a burden. Your walk, your spirit, something's not right. What's the solution? Praise. Praise. Praise him. He hasn't changed. He hasn't moved. He hasn't lied. He hasn't deceived you. He's there. Praise him. Turn to Isaiah 61, verse number 3. Isaiah 61, verse number 3. And we know by interpretation, there's only one interpretation of Scripture, but there are many applications. So Israel's in view here, but application is application. And Isaiah 61, 3 says, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness comes upon you, The garment of praise is where you want to go. Worship him. Worship him. Spurgeon said this. My happiest moments are when I am worshipping God, really adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. In that worship, I forget the cares of the church and everything else. To me, it is the nearest approach to what it will be in heaven. You know, heaven's a place of worship. I've said this before. You study the book of Revelation, you will see uh, it's a place of worship. And there's a reason for that. God is worthy, absolutely. And worship magnifies him. It exalts him, and that's how it should. So if we want to get a little bit of heaven, we should be praising. We should be singing unto the Lord, right? I've said this before. I'm sure I've said this before in church. That The unique thing, you can test this out when we sing the last song, okay? The unique thing is that that singing worship songs will engage your entire brain. The melody and the music. There's a written word and there's a sung word. And it's engaging you. It's a bit like we have a Ford Cougar. And it's four-wheel drive, so it says. But it's not really four-wheel drive. It's intelligent four-wheel drive. What does that mean? It means that it only engages the four wheels whenever it's needed. So you put the foot down, put the car to its full, all four wheels will engage. But normally it will just drive in two. At the minute you've got two wheels in engagement. You know, because I'm good but I can't sing and preach at the same time. But when we sing and worship, you are engaging four wheels. And when you do that, there's no room or capacity in your brain to start to think about other things some of you may be thinking how long is that pastor going to go on for this morning i've got lunch try and do that try it 
whenever you're singing and praising and worshipping God in the next heaven. See how it goes. Praise is all important. So, you know, what do we do? We praise God. We worship him. Again, theologians, I'll ask you the question. Orthodoxy. Heard that word? Do you know what it means? Anybody? Right. No. Right doctrine. That's what people say. That's wrong. It's right praise. It's right worship. That's the docs. Ortho means straight. But we often think it's right doctrine. Now, that's a part of it, obviously. But the right praise, the right worship. So what are we to do when we're down? What is our hope to be? It is to be a praising hope. So, let me wrap it up. I am done. Holding fast in hard times. How are we to do it? We're to be of the house of Christ and live out that positional truth that we are in him. And because we are in him, we have boldness, we have confidence, and we have hope rejoicing until the end. What does that hope look like? Number one, it's got to be patient. Hang in there. Help is on the way. Number two, it's got to be proactive. Don't just sit back. Operate in him. And number three, it's got to be praising all the time praising him yes your situation may not look the way you want it to be now but one day if you're in the house of Christ it will exceed anything you could ever imagine praise him for that for he is the king we hold on to him turn with me to 2 Titus chapter 2 verse 11 to 13 I'll read this and then we'll close in prayer this should be we live out our hope. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, familiar verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Wherever you are, wherever you're at this morning, whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever struggle, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Help is coming. Hold fast in hard times. Be patient in your hope, be proactive in your hope, and be praising in your hope because of who you are in Christ.